Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles. And today, the MacBook Air, the M2 version, has gone on sale. We're going to talk about that. Lots of Apple Watch rumors and new features that have been uncovered in the third beta of iOS 16, the developer beta. This episode is brought to you by Wealthfront and Truebill. you hear about them in a moment. And joining me this week is my friend, Wes Hilliard. How's it going, Wes? Uh, pretty good, Stephen. Coming at you from a different corner of my office. So <laughs> Different corner of the office. Changing it up. Is it a different scenery? You looking out a, a window or anything? I'm, I'm staring at a wall. Okay. okay. I just, I, I rotated back to the corner because I wanted more floor space. So. Uh, hey, hey, listen, you get rearrange. It's a variety is a spice of life. That's what my English teacher used to say. Yeah, Got to do it every like couple months just to keep things new and fresh. Exactly. Exactly. Speaking of new and fresh. MacBook Air, the M2 is on sale, a brand new one. You can buy that. Oh, but before we get to that, one five-star review shout out. I want to thank Conley from South Carolina. Give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Appreciate that. Also had a question. He's got an iPhone 13 Pro Max. He says he's found a very irritating pattern, which is mail on his iPhone. Pretty delayed. Sometimes he has to force quit mail for it to open. Is there anyone else with this problem? And I would say Conley... I think everyone has this problem. I find mail to be a little glitchy sometimes. Sometimes you got to force quit it, but uh, maybe maybe it'll be fixed in iOS 16. I don't know. Do you ever find that to be true? Do you ever do you use the stock mail app? I use the stock mail app. Um, I don't really give much thought to mail. I check it, delete a lot of stuff, and then move on. I don't I don't really notice anything going on. I'm not a heavy mail user. Let's say that. Okay, you're in the, you're in that Slack world. You're doing all the slacks just for work. But yeah, personally, I've just never had much use for email. I've pretty much blocked everyone on the face of the earth or sent it to spam. So only the things I really need to see get through. And uh, if you're going to my spam folder, then uh, sorry, guys, but (laughs) you're using you're using that lockdown mode. That's a new feature. We're going to get to that. That's that's a bit of a controversial feature. Very interesting is uncovered in the third beta. We'll get to that in a second. My controversial opinion is that email is uh, 40 years old and should die, but that's just me. <laughs> well, as soon as there is a, I don't know, cross-platform, cross-service, I mean, the closest thing that's come to this is like WhatsApp, where this is why it's so popular internationally, where you can communicate with pretty much anyone as long as you have their number, and it's on every device, every country, everywhere. And other than that i mean email yeah not to tangent too long like i get it it's cool it's kind of like having a mailbox in front of your house as long as you have the address you can get mail it's just been heavily abused and it's kind of terrible let us know your thoughts on email listeners you could tweet at wes and me all right the m2 macbook air official pre-order date is actually today as you listen to this if you support the show you might have gotten this a little early so you might have a day's head start but july 8th friday you can pre-order a brand new m2 macbook air It will be available July 15th, next Friday. I imagine this is going to go very quickly. And so if you want one in the next three months, I would say you probably want to jump on those pre-orders right away, especially that midnight color. You know that's going to be gone very quickly. Time is on Apple's website. So 5 a.m. West Coast, 8 a.m. East Coast to order M2 MacBook Air. There's going to be lots of configurations. The base model starts at $1199. Just to remind you, that'll be with 256 gigabytes of SSD storage and eight gigabytes of unified memory. I would encourage you to try and bump that up to 16. You can get up to 24 gigabytes now of unified memory because of the M2 chip. And you can get, I think, up to two terabytes SSD. Let me see. Yeah, two terabyte SSD. That's right. If you max it out, you can play with the configurator early. So before you actually buy it, you can play with it. If you get these 24 gigabytes unified memory, two terabyte SSD, which really only the main customizations, it's 2,500. So the most you can pay is that. You can also choose to get the different USB-C adapter. You can either get the 35-watt dual USB-C port or the 67-watt. And we talked about this, I think, two weeks ago, actually. Wes and I talked about it. Don't go for the dual one. Get one from Anchor or Satechi. They got better dual USB-C port chargers. It's no upcharge for the 67-watt USB-C power adapter that comes with the MacBook Air. Literally, it's just a choice. They're both included. I would recommend the 67-watt. You get faster charging. And you can get a double USB-C port later, but it's up for sale. Grab it if you'd like. $2,500 for an ultralight notebook. I mean, I get it, but also MacBook Pro, I, I don't know. That's just a, a very expensive computer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I get it. If you really need 24 gigs of RAM, yes, the MacBook Pro doesn't come with 24 base. I understand. It's just, man, that's pricey. So let's do a little comparison. I'm going to get the 14-inch MacBook Pro loaded up here in the configurator. So if we spec'd up the MacBook Air M2, 16 gigs of unified memory, one terabyte SSD. I do the same with the 14-inch MacBook Pro. There's actually a base model 
like the higher base model 14 inch, it's $2,500 for the MacBook Pro, $1,900 for the M2 MacBook Air. So you're talking about a $600 difference if you go for that 16 gig memory range and a terabyte SSD. With that 14 inch MacBook Pro, you get ProMotion, larger display, better display. You get the SD card slot, HDMI. Uh, well, I mean, it's negligibly thicker, heavier. I mean, it is it is thicker and heavier, heavier but like you're not going to know. Like if, if you went a month with a MacBook Air and then switched to a MacBook Pro, you wouldn't you wouldn't realize that you even changed laptops except for maybe a color, you know, difference. Yeah. They're really cool. I really like the idea of a MacBook Air. But for me personally, if I hit that $2,000 price point uh, in the config, I would just switch to a MacBook Pro. That and I don't know what it is in my brain i know i wouldn't need like an m1 max but for some reason m1 pro just sounds better to me than the standard m2 chip uh just mm. even though i probably don't even come close to peaking its uh cpu or anything it just for some reason in my brain it's just like why do you why would you want the base one if you're spending two thousand dollars right like and i'm i mean yeah. this is coming from the guy that spent two thousand dollars on an ipad pro with a terabyte of storage i get it <laughs> but if, if yeah. I could get the M1 Pro and an iPad Pro, I would do it. It's just, yeah, that, that MacBook Air, it's it's so funny to me that Apple's price ladder overlaps itself. And I, I guess that's the whole reason. Once you spend $2,500 on the MacBook, you're eyeballing the more expensive right. uh, MacBook Pro, which also, by sheer coincidence, ob uh, of course, definitely not a plan by Apple, 14-inch MacBook Pro also makes Apple more money if you buy it. It has a, a wider, uh, what what's it called? Uh, profit margin. Profit margin, yeah. So they want you to bump up to that one anyway. So, you know. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, it, the M2 MacBook Air, it's going to be a great computer for a lot of people. And again, if you don't need the Pro, you don't care about the SD card slot, and you want that midnight color, you can't get a midnight MacBook Pro. You got to get a MacBook Air if you want somewhat of a color. So take a screenshot if you get it and uh, tweet at Wes and myself. Let's see who got MacBook Airs on launch day. Yeah, the, the rule of thumb with this is all, has always been the same for me. If you're asking yourself, do I need a MacBook Pro? You don't need a MacBook Pro. Um, you already know if you need one. If you if like if you're a developer, if you're one of those people who absolutely needs that extra RAM or the extra GPU cores of an M1 Pro processor, whatever, like yeah, you yeah. already you're already there. You already know you already have the money set aside. If you're, but if if you're at all questioning it, just get a MacBook Air because it's going to serve every need you could possibly have and more. So yeah, and it's a very good looking laptop. Oh, for sure. Now, when we look at the silicon release cycle, we now have an M2 chip. It's going in the MacBook Air and that 13 inch MacBook Pro. We're not going to talk about it again, <laughs> but oh, we're still waiting for the M2 Mac Mini and M2 iMac. Those are the two kind of base model machines that get this same M2 chip. Also the M2 iPad. I believe we're probably going to see those devices this fall. I think we're going to see all three of those. I think we're going to see the Mac mini, the iMac 24 inch, and the M2 iPad. I think we're going to see it this fall. It's going to be over a year and a half for that iPad update. I don't know. I'll, I'll go ahead and undercut your hopes and dreams. The, yeah. mm -hmm. I, the iMac and the Mac mini, absolutely. I think those are uh, good fall products, especially since the Mac mini is due for a redesign. Um, we're expecting that. Right. Maybe even a m2 pro model sometime I, but let me go ahead and say m2 pro don't even think about it until spring of next year but anyway sure the m2 ipad pro that's a little more iffy i agree it has been that 18 month update cycle has come but we have been in this style of ipad since 2018 mm -hmm. i'm wondering if we're up for it may be not a redesign. Like, what are you going to do with this thing? It is a rectangle screen with no bezels. Yeah. I, you can't really change what it looks like. But I could see Apple tweaking it in some way or introducing new accessories, Apple Pencil 3, whatever. But that kind of release feels like a spring release. We're going to, like, do this on its own. Let's do an iPad release cycle in March. And so, for me, I'm saying... Wait, wait on the M2 iPad Pro until March. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I thought you were going to send me the September uh, Earth, Wind & Fire gif again. It could come this fall. Like, it's a possibility. Like, if they do nothing but put the M2 chip in there, absolutely. They'll just throw it out in a press release in October. Fine. Right. And we'll all probably be a little sad about that. But I have a feeling this cycle for iPad is going to be a little different not only do we have iPad OS 16 and center stage and a lot of crazy stuff, we could see a larger model. And uh, part of that redesign that I'm talking about would play into that larger model. What do they have to change about an iPad for it to be bigger, but also thin and light right. and portable? What would need to change about the Magic Keyboard to be a 15-inch Magic Keyboard, you know? Mm. So, like, that kind of stuff sounds like a 
personal individual event and they don't normally hold iPad events in the fall. Those are normally in the spring. So I would see, I would say March. That's just my guess though, based on nothing. Yeah, I would say 50-50. I'm 50-50 on it. Could be fall, could be spring. What I'm most curious about is in this M2 lineup, we still don't have an Apple Silicon Mac Pro. We're still waiting. The two-year transition, apparently Apple believed that that was the fall time. That's when they released the first M1 machines. That'll be two years ago once we get to October, November of this year. So I imagine we're going to see that Apple Silicon Mac Pro coming this fall. And I am very curious if they go with an M chip. And then if they do, is it going to be an M1 something? Which, you know, the SVP, Jeff Williams said during the last event when he was talking about the Apple Silicon chips that this is no more M1 chips. The M1 Ultra was the last one in that lineup. So is the Mac Pro, could it have double M1 Ultras? I feel like it would not be that. Would it be an M2 something? Too soon. That also doesn't feel likely. I really think for this Mac Pro, it's going to go with a different naming convention entirely. We have the A-series chips in the iPhone and some iPads. We have the M-series chips in some iPads and Macs. And then for the Apple Silicon Mac Pro, I could see them going with X something or some other chip that separates the Mac Pro line from the rest of the Macs. It's it's an X series chip, so it's the Mac Pro with X two uh, X one processor. Um, mm, maybe terrible. Uh, more X's. No, it's one of those things where I, I wonder. Hmm, this this meme doesn't translate to verbal form, but it's the guy pointing at his head, you know, th- thinking, you know, the right, right, right. right. Yes, so yes. It, it, Apple completes its two year transition if no Mac Pro exists. It's no longer part of the lineup, right? They just pull it out and say, nope, there's no more Mac Pro, mm. and then suddenly here's the Mac Pro later. But they did complete the transition because there technically wasn't a Mac Pro for three months. But mm. I don't know it. It can't be an M2 chip because if it is, we're not going to see an M2 Mac Pro until 2024 because that's when the the high-end chips are going to be here. Sorry, guys. It's not happening sooner. I don't know what Mark Gurman's on about, but it can't happen in a year. That would be nuts. But the M1 side of things, sure, I, I, I'm i with you. Like Maybe a whole different chip, and that's kind of the uh, red herring here of... We told you there's no more M-series chips coming, but we didn't say that no more chips were coming, right? And that's fine. <laughs> sure, sure. Like, the, like, haha, got you. I don't, I don't know if Apple's playing that game. It just feels odd to me. I could see this just being two M1 Ultras in parallel, and somehow they figured out a way to do external, like, or uh, GPU cards and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm very curious what it's going to look like. So this fall, I imagine we're going to see a bunch of Macs. Mark Gurman, actually, Mark Gurman, we didn't cover the newsletter in last week's episode, but in his newsletter two weeks ago almost, he talked about that there's going to be a slew of Apple devices being released by the end of this year and early 2023. Just a bunch of Macs, different like AirPods Pro, all that kind of stuff. You know, the different models, Apple Watches, which we're going to talk about those rumors in a second. So there's going to be a bunch of Macs, a bunch of devices coming out in the next probably six to eight months. So exciting time. This whole Apple Silicon revolution is, uh, is pretty exciting. I'm into it. This episode is brought to you by Wealthfront. Listen, in times like these, you need to make the most of your cash. And keeping cash anywhere just isn't paying you a high enough interest rate. Instead, use Wealthfront. Wealthfront is a saving and investing app that can help you earn more on your money and build wealth for the future. The Wealthfront Cash account gives everyone a 1.4% APY interest rate, which is 20 times what traditional banks pay. So if you kept $10,000 in a Wealthfront Cash account for a year, you'd be on pace to earn an extra $140 a year instead of like seven bucks. That means while your money earns 20 times more, you can keep saving more, whether that's for an emergency fund, a down payment, payment, or your honeymoon. And unlike other savings options, you'll always have access to your money thanks to unlimited free transfers, free access to over 19,000 ATMs, and no account fees. And then if you ever wanted to invest with Wealthfront, you can move your money into the market in minutes to grow it even more for the long term. And I've personally used Wealthfront for investing in the past. I love the service. Their app is super easy to use. I highly recommend Opening that cash account is super easy and it only takes just a few minutes to sign up and start earning 1.4% interest on all your cash. And if you start now, you'll get a free $50 bonus with a $500 deposit. That's a great deal. There are already nearly half a million people using Wealthfront to save even more, earn more, and build long-term wealth. So why wait? Earn 1.4% on your cash today. Visit Wealthfront.com slash Apple Insider to get started. That's Wealthfront.com dot com slash Apple Insider. The link will also be in the episode description. This no-brainer good news has been a paid endorsement from Wealthfront. Our thanks to Wealthfront for sponsoring this episode. 
All right, so the developer beta 3 of iOS 16, iPadOS 16, all that came out earlier this week. Still got my iPad running that iPadOS 16 beta. It's getting more stable for sure. Battery life is not getting drained in like three minutes, which is very nice. But there's been some new features uncovered in beta 3. One of them in particular, you're going to be tempted to want to do this, but we would recommend not. So this new feature is called lockdown mode. This is going to be available to everyone once iOS 16 launches this fall. And this is Apple's description of it. Lockdown mode is an extreme optional protection that should only be used if you believe you may be personally targeted by a highly sophisticated cyber attack. Most people are never targeted by attacks of this nature. So this feature is if you are a person of maybe high governmental status, maybe you're a big celebrity or whatever, and you might get attacked and you might be attacked cyberly. <laughs> I don't think that's a word uh, for whatever. Honestly, even celebrities are outside of this spectrum just because yeah. you have to think about it. Generally speaking, we're talking about like the Israeli firms. I always forget their name uh, that make those boxes that they sell to like police departments and stuff for like $24,000 for a box. Or right. um, we're talking about NSO group where their sophisticated hacks are on sale for thousands of dollars, if not tens of thousands. Uh, some of these things even get into the millions. I mean, yeah, it's crazy for governments and countries. Those prices are nothing when you're dealing with a terrorist you're trying to target or a person of interest or a journalist you want to take down because you're yeah. an evil regime or whatever like those these numbers are nothing but you know your nosy sister isn't going to go and pay nso group for a hack to get into your iphone no no no. <laughs> you know this is for like ambassadors yeah or if you are a whistleblower of some kind and you're in another country so here's what it would do if you would enable lockdown mode in ios 16 this is going to be in the privacy settings in your iphone and ipad for your messages Message attachments are blocked. Features are unavailable. Some features are unavailable. FaceTime, only incoming FaceTime calls from people you have called previously would come through. Everyone else would be blocked. Web browsing, some technologies and browsing features are blocked. Shared albums and photos would be removed from the Photos app. New shared album invitations would be blocked. Device connections, and I think this is the big one. Wired device connections from your device to another or an accessory from your iPhone is locked and blocked. So. There are some methods, I think, that I've been using in the past of connecting an iPhone to some physical device, some terminal, and there have been exploits to be able to get into the phone, maybe an iPad, through some of these physical connections. And so lockdown mode would eliminate the ability to hardware connect your device to something else. It would just be totally locked down. Apple services, incoming invitations for Apple services from people you have not previously invited are blocked. And then profiles... So if you have like VPN profiles or profiles for your business for mobile device management, configuration profiles for school or work cannot be installed. And so these are very specific lockdowns, again, to protect information on your device that might be targeted by a cyber attack or if your device fell into the wrong hands. Let's say, again, you're an ambassador of some kind and you have sensitive information on your device. This lockdown mode would prevent device connections. So even if there was some kind of black box that you can connect an iPhone to and it would break into it or access some data. This would supposedly eliminate that. So again, this is very specific use cases. It is available to everyone who will be running iOS 16. So anyone could turn this on, but you really shouldn't. Like this is not recommended for like normal use cases, not, you know, that's why you use a passcode and face ID. Like don't, don't do use a lockdown mode. Yeah, you can turn this on on iPadOS and macOS as well. Mm. It's doing the same thing on all these systems. Um, it's targeting exploits used by basically uh, messaging services. So like uh, the NSO group, for example, got in trouble and why Apple's suing them is because exploits were used against uh, non like terrorist groups, basically like journalists and diplomats. And they discovered that like an exploit was sent through WhatsApp uh, via a link. They tap the link, it opens Safari mm. and executes arbitrary code that basically puts stuff on the phone that shouldn't be there and and eventually it turns into like a jailbreak, uh, a secret jailbreak in the background collecting a bunch of data and sending it to a server. This is possible, but again, that kind of exploit costs a lot of money and takes a lot of effort to get 
uh, implemented. Yeah. And that's why this company, like this group exists. Anyway, this would stop it from happening because lockdown mode, like in browsing, it, it executes just in time code JavaScript and everything, uh, JavaScript and every, uh, is disabled for a lot of websites. A lot of things are just completely turned off. If you try to surf the web uh, using uh, when, when you're in lockdown mode, even Safari brings up a little window at the bottom. It says lockdown mode is enabled. It can change a lot of how things function. So uh, some websites just won't even work. Um, like imagine a banking website or something just not working because they use a specific type of code that yeah. uses this. So again, like you're reducing your surface area for attack but you're also reducing your ability to use your device and again no one is ever going to be in danger of these kinds of attacks like like i just uh i posted on like we posted on twitter it's it's a, a poll of are you going to turn this on anyway even though everyone's told you not to 28 percent say they're turning it on yeah 28 percent of like over 300 votes and, and you know we have a very tech savvy crowd and uh who, who follow us on twitter and everything yeah they're they're just like oh yeah we're gonna we're gonna turn this thing on right away and it's just like you're gonna break your phone you're gonna be like why isn't i message working don't do it you yeah, you can get photos. I made Andrew send me a picture. He sent me a picture of a dog and it came through, but anything else isn't going to work. Share plays going to stop working shared with you, uh, where it shows links from messages and Safari and such. A lot of photos features is going to go away. I turned it on to test it and turn it back off. It's not destructive. So even though it is a highly protective system, it doesn't do anything with the existing data, except it removes those albums from your photos app. So you have to go and turn that back on when you right. turn off lockdown mode. It's not going to do anything particularly destructive, at least not right now. Uh, so it's not like you're going to do anything bad if you turn it on. It's just your experience using the iPhone is going to be much worse. You don't want to do this. Yeah, don't do it. Even though it's there, this is very, very, very specific use case. Now, another feature uncovered in beta three is something called virtual cards. So this is something where if you use Apple Pay, Apple Pay kind of already does this. If you use Apple Pay for a transaction from your Apple Watch or from your iPhone, or you do it like on your Mac, if you even if you're doing Apple Pay on a website, there is a unique identifier generated. So your actual card number, debit or credit card, is not sent to the merchant. They actually get a unique string. And so if their servers were ever compromised, you know, that we've heard about different businesses that, you know, all the records of credit cards that have been saved have been leaked and all that. If you had used Apple Pay exclusively with that specific merchant, even a data breach where a hacker got all those credit card numbers, they wouldn't be able to use yours because all those Apple Pay transactions are obscured through their own unique link. Well, it looks like this is not a for sure feature, but it looks like Apple is investigating an idea of something called virtual cards. So if a website didn't take Apple Pay, for instance, and they don't accept the regular Apple Card, which Apple Card does this also for privacy's sake, it generates unique strings and different purchases, that Apple would be able to create a virtual credit card number that would be temporary, that still charges your credit card, whatever it might be, a Visa or MasterCard, but that that number is temporary. And after a certain amount of time, it would expire. So if it were released in some data breach, that your credit card would still not be compromised because it was a temporary number. And so I love this idea. This is why I use Apple Pay as many places as I can, not only for the ease of use, but also because I know privacy and security wise, it is protecting my actual credit cards. So this virtual card idea, hope it does become a feature. Uh, don't you get tokenized um, transactions at the register already? Uh, this is just being applied to the web now. Like when you tap your iPhone to register in real life, it sends the card data over, but it's not your actual card data. You look at that receipt, it's not going to be the last four of your actual physical card. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Right. But yeah, this is interesting for the web too. I don't know if you've ever heard of privacy.com. It's a really funny name for a website that does card virtualization. Oh. Yeah, it's a really useful tool. I use it forever until Apple Card came around and... I deleted all my privacy cards and moved all of my websites and everything to Apple Card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so we have a lot of Apple Watch rumors recently. So first one, this is going to be a new model Apple Watch. We've heard about this in the past year, maybe even two years, I feel like. But that the Apple Watch is going to have an extreme version this fall. It's going to have a larger screen. This is according to Bloomberg and Mark Gurman, as well as Ross Young talks about a larger screen on the Series 8. We'll get to that in a second. This Apple Watch Extreme it's going to have a nearly two inch screen that would be about 47, 48 millimeters, 7% more display than current Apple Watches. This Apple Watch Extreme would have a stronger metal material than aluminum. 
We kind of have that in some Apple watches. Stainless steel and titanium, you could consider stronger than the aluminum, but it could be a different metal altogether. Not clear what it might be. And that the more rugged design will include a larger battery and the display with increased shatter resistance. And this would be geared towards athletes or people who are very like active outdoors. If you hike or do some kind of very uh, active sport, maybe full contact or something like that, that this Apple Watch would be much more durable, that this would be the, the extreme or the explorer edition it had been called previously. I feel like we've heard so many rumors about this particular Apple Watch model that it's got to come at some point. And it seems like this year might be a good year, especially if there's not a ton of features added to the Series 8, which we have some rumors there we'll get to in a second. But this Apple Watch Extreme, I think it would be geared towards the right audience. You know, someone who is very active and doing things outside, they might not want to buy the most expensive Apple Watch just because it's titanium and has that sapphire glass. You know, I, I like the titanium model. That's what I have now. And I do get it because that sapphire is more durable. The titanium is a little more scratch resistant than even like the stainless steel. You still scratch it. I still got marks on mine, but it stands a little bit more. But it'd be great if Apple slotted something, maybe a little more expensive than that base model aluminum one, but not that Apple Watch edition price point, something in the middle really geared towards that extreme use case or explorer outdoor and really increase that durability. It would also be great if a price point would also be good for kids. I know my son has shattered his Apple Watch SE screen once. Apple Care came to the rescue, got a replacement that was great. But for certain kids, especially some who may be active playing sports in high school, stuff like that, I think this would be a great product. You think this is coming this fall, Wes? Well, Stephen, first of all, I got to critique your uh, pronunciation. I think it's uh, Apple Watch Extreme. You know, like a oh, I'm sorry, Extreme yeah, yeah. Apple. Yeah, Watch. like a super soaker, super soaker. Uh, sorry, super yeah. <laughs> soaker commercial from the 1990s. Yeah, you got Apple. I'll do the voiceover. Yeah. Give me. I'll do the Apple Watch Extreme. Extreme. Um, yeah, it's it's got to be coming, right? I, I feel like a lot of the if you follow a lot of people um, who talk about this on Twitter, it's it's hilarious to watch all these. Um, rumors merge and combine and can let now it's the yes, extreme yes. kids watch edition made of plastic rubber and metal and it's just like <laughs> it's it's going to be one of these things not all of them got to be something yeah but no i i feel like this adventure whatever watch where you can wear it in mud sure uh it, it's it's got to be coming i would be very surprised if it wasn't made out of like the g-shock super rubber material and sapphire glass or something like that would be cool i don't understand why this would be another metal watch. We already have metal. What? Guess what, guys? Aluminum is metal. I don't know. Right. Titanium. T you know, steel. Like, I saw someone post like uh, it was like one of those stupid rumor twitters, and it's like the next the Apple Watch Extreme Edition will be made out of some side, type of metal, and it's just like guys. <laughs> well, let, let me do this. Let me Google something for our listeners. I'll save them a Google. Uh, the strongest metals. I uh, looked here on the website when it comes to impact strength. Uh, vibranium. Uh, yeah, yeah vibranium would be <laughs> that thing would sell like hotcakes <laughs> uh but number one is tungsten which i do recall when someone like gets a wedding band and they work in like construction or whatever a lot of times they want to get the tungsten because they're it's actually a cheaper metal sometimes than silver and gold it is cheaper than silver and gold but it is almost indestructible the problem is if you ever injure your finger and your finger swells they can't cut the tungsten ring off because the metal is so strong. And so there's been, you know, some nightmare cases of, of what has happened to people like that. But tungsten might be the strongest. So as far as metal choices, tungsten might be the one if it's in an extreme Apple Watch. I don't see this. If this is the sports angle they're going for, we're not going to see a heavy metal. Like, that doesn't make any sense. It's got to be lightweight. Uh, yeah. Like, why else would you, why would you wear a, a five pound watch on your arm climbing, you know, a rock face or something? It doesn't make any sense. I don't know. I'm very interested in this watch. I don't think I would buy it personally. I'm I'm leaning towards stainless steel this year because I, I just want a fancier watch with uh, sapphire glass. Yeah. But getting on to the other rumors, I definitely think I'm interested in the larger Apple Watch. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Truebill. Guys, I love Truebill. You know, it's the app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. In this day where you're paying for several streaming services, lots of different app subscriptions, service subscriptions, Truebill lets you know what those subscriptions are and they'll even help you cancel them. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. You just link your account, they connect with Plaid so it's super secure and private, and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. Yes, that's right. Your Truebill concierge is there when you need them 
cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. I've actually recently been taking stock, checking all the subscriptions, making sure these are actually things I want to keep paying for. And Truebill is the app I go to to look at all the subscriptions in one place and then cancel the ones that I don't want. Truebill has over 2 million users and helped them save over $100 million. And I can attest to Truebill personally, I love it. So don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash Apple Insider. Go right now, Truebill.com slash Apple Insider. It could save you thousands a year. Truebill.com slash Apple Insider. And that link is in the episode description. Our thanks to Truebill for sponsoring this episode. Yeah, so Ross Young, display analyst, he's been pretty accurate in the past, says that the new Apple Watch might go all the way up to 47 millimeters or 1.99 inches which would be a two millimeter increase from the current Apple Watch Series 7. Right now we have 45 and 43. That was already increased from 44 and 42, and then previously 42 and 38. So, you know, it is getting bigger and bigger. I'm looking at my Series 7. I do have the larger one, the 45 millimeter. I'd be down. I'd be down for a larger screen. Let's do it. Well, I think most people seem to be. We ran a, a poll the other day, asked, you know, what's the biggest you'd like to see an Apple Watch get? Some people said 41's the right size. It's they're already too big, and 45 millimeters is just right. That was 33%, but 37%, the majority said 47 millimeters. Let's go, Series Eight. I agree. I'm I'm happy to see this thing get a little bit bigger. 47 millimeters will be a noticeable size increase when you're looking at the watch, but physically speaking, it's not that much bigger. Uh, you can look at our article on this. I went into Pixelmator and turned on the ruler and made these like the exact millimeter sizes to mm. kind of see what they would look like. And it's not that much bigger, but it is like, I'm sure, especially if you have smaller wrists, it is going to be noticeably larger. Um, I asked also just as a joke, uh, even bigger Apple sleeve and 16% <laughs> of people voted for that. So I, I don't know. I'm kind of here for the, the pit boy 3000 from fallout let's go just wrap an entire computer around my forearm i guess but uh boom but for now 47 millimeter series 8 sounds good to me make it durable more surface area bigger glass screen means more opportunity to shatter it so uh that is the trade-off that's true that is true and to correct it i'm looking at our article so apple watch sizes original apple watches were 38 and 42 millimeters then it went to 40 and 44 Right now, it's 41 and 45 millimeters. So if it went to 47, it would then be 43 millimeters and 47. I could see then if they, if they did that, if Series 8 was 43 and 47 millimeters, I feel like it would make sense for an Apple Watch SE, an updated model, to then slot in to that 41, 42 millimeter size. And this way that... 41, 44. Well, what would be even stranger here is um, Ross Young suggests this is a third model. So Apple would actually sell like uh, the Series 8. Seemingly, he didn't say this directly, um, but this is what we're pulling out of it is seemingly this means there will be the current Series 7 sizes 41 and 45 and then a third larger 47 millimeter option. Okay. And um, that also seems to suggest, sorry guys, no redesign. This would be the same Apple Watch Series 7 design in this new model, uh, not rather than a flat-sided version. Not confirmed, but that seems to be implied by this rumor as well. Right, no no square sides, most likely. Now, when it comes to the feature set, Mark Gurman has said that the Apple Watch Series 8 may be able to detect whether or not you have a fever. And so, you know, we've been talking about what health features are going to be coming to new Apple Watch. That's really how Apple positions the Apple Watch, is really health and fitness, not only health as far as exercise, but also things like affibulation and blood oxygen. And so now it might be able to detect whether you have a fever. It won't give you your temperature. So it's not like you'd be able to look at your watch and say, oh, I'm running a 99.8 temperature or I'm running 101 fever. But it would just give you that notification to say, you possibly have a fever right now. You might want to check it, which I think would be valuable because a lot of times if you're in that early fever stage, you wouldn't feel too different. And so if your Apple Watch could warn to check, especially in COVID times, you know, when you get COVID, you most likely will have a bit of a fever. So it seems like a, a logical next step for health notifications in that. I don't see why this couldn't detect internal body temperature. You you have children, right? You Have you used the I do. 
contact thermometers or the non like the the ones you point at their forehead and it basically uses a, a ra- whatever scanner to why can't the apple watch do that it seems like a, a, one of those sensors apple could squeeze in there i don't know it's either that or apple's edging away from a health case of we can't literally tell people that they have a fever i don't know but that seems odd to me thermometers tell you you have a fever why can't the apple watch yeah i wonder you know with the blood oxygen when that first came out with the series six you know it would give you a lower rating than what your actual blood oxygen and if you're trying to use it to anticipate whether or not you have covid or something it can be scary if it says like you have a 94 percent blood oxygen which can be considered low or even in the high 80s i know my wife has gotten some of those uh, notifications sometimes and it's like well i feel fine and we'll use the finger blood oxygen sensor which you can get for like 10 bucks at walgreens or whatever and it has a very different rating sometimes so maybe apple is trying to skew away from exact number measurements when it comes to those body health type things especially ones that would make you think you have an illness or something and just more skewing towards the hey you might want to check your temperature or you might want to check your blood oxygen maybe is is this where we are with apple watch though like i think like we've discussed this before apple watch has hit a maturity design and feature wise like there's only so many sensors you can cram into this size and shape temperature being the next best thing sure we already have sensors touching the arm why not you can probably derive something from that I don't, I don't see us getting much more. I think uh, the future of the Apple Watch is processing power, getting that information and interpreting it in ways that's useful for the user. I mean, how much more could we possibly do other than extend battery life, processing power, fast charging, stuff like that? I'm, I'm just not sure how, much, how many more health features. Because yeah. in order to really get more advanced health features, we need more advanced sensors. But we're running out of space. Right. Well, it's getting slightly bigger, right? <laughs> but probably not big enough. But I would be curious, listeners, if you have ideas or thoughts that you would hope your Apple Watch gives. I know blood glucose is the, you know, the black swan of sure, sure. Apple Watch health features. And one day, you know, I think one day, I just don't know how many years away that is. We've heard 2024. It's possible. You know, it's po- it's possible. I have a feeling, and this is just me speaking as someone without diabetes, um, I have a feeling that the thing that's actually going to coalesce out of this whole glucose reading thing is we're eventually going to get to the point where we already kind of have, we already have this, but like a third party company and Apple's going to be like, go to these guys. We worked with them to make sure it's absolutely syncs with the Apple watch and you're gonna get one of those things injected in you that can send a relay to the Apple watch and update your Mm. blood sugar that way. That way you're not pricking your finger every hour. And I think that's meeting in the middle of technology of yes it technically we might be able to eventually send a light into your arm and bounce back some glucose measurements but as far as people who actually need these measurements to live i i feel like yeah. it's never going to be accurate enough i mean we're talking mm. like at least not for another 20 years um i mean i could be wrong i don't know where we are on this but i have a feeling the like injected sensor thing is just going to get to a point where it's easy to do they're not it's not going to be harmful it's not going to require constant surveillance or anything just stick it in your arm here's your blood sugar move on kind of thing and i see that being uh actually a really awesome solution versus you know we really need this really advanced technology and a consumer device that's only supposed to cost 300 dollars. i just don't i don't know where we meet there yeah it that is a difficult problem to solve for sure i mean because like everyone's always asking Oh, it's, is it possible? Can we get there? But I don't think anyone's really asking how expensive is it? <laughs> right. Like even right. if it was theoretically possible, is this a $3,000 medical device? Does it have to go through the FDA? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Apple added the AFib heart monitoring and that's using the heart monitoring features already in the Apple Watch. So like Series 7, Series 6, you'll get that. They do the ECG. And so I wonder, will there be other stats and metrics they could glean from sensors that are there already? I think of blood oxygen, you know, we talked about maybe COVID, stuff like that. But if someone suffers from asthma or a similar like breathing type disorder, could the sensors of the Apple Watch be able to give early warning signs for things like that? You know, if, if- well, that's the that's the stuff I'm excited about personally, like watching the WWDC keynote and seeing them figure out a person's stride and stature yeah. based on a device on their wrist. Like, that's really cool. Like, uh, and that's very computationally heavy. They're using a lot of micro information, lots of little numbers and little digits and things uh, going through an algorithm to define these precise things that's why they can tell you if you're unsteady or like hey uh, are, are you good you need to go see a doctor are you dizzy or anything right like right. i feel like a lot of that's going to get better and as apple gets more and more into warnings and alerts i think they're going to toe the line between medical and not and 
get right up to diagnosing something and being able to say, Hey, contact your doctor about your heart. We noticed this or about your brain or, you know, yeah. your, your physical health. And I think that's really important. And I think that's where the innovation comes from. Not so much stuffing this thing with 15 more sensors that may or may not work as well as an actual medical device. Right. I wonder too, if once Apple moves into the VR, AR world, which we haven't heard about those recently, but if the Apple Watch could be used in conjunction with some kind of headset for actual interaction with the VR space. I, I believe, I believe like maybe not VR, but augmented reality once we get to Apple Glass. Yeah. I think the, the combination of Apple Glass, Apple Watch, and iPhone is going to be really important uh, because the computational load can be de uh, divided between them. And I think a lot of the motion information can be done by the Apple Watch and iPhone. And that way, all the glasses have to do is track. So I believe that it's going to definitely be a very important input device, especially for AI when you don't necessarily want to walk around in the real world with a game control in your hand in order to navigate menus you'd rather right, right. like you know do the pinch motion with your fingers which is an accessibility feature now but imagine an ar with glasses on you could pinch and grab um, digital objects that you can see with your apple glasses and you're able to do it because your apple watch sees that you're pinching your fingers isn't right. that crazy it's amazing and that's something <laughs> you know if if our listeners have not tried it the accessibility features for apple watch they can distinguish a pinch of fingers like pointer to thumb and a fist clench, even a single or double fist clench. And you can actually program interactions with the Apple Watch to those gestures like a clench, like scroll down or scroll to the top of the list or go home. And so those kinds of gestures are already available on the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch can sense those and distinguish those. So like what's it saying, compared with an AR, and I, I really do think because it can distinguish between all those different movements of the single hand, maybe also a VR, I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't be enough control to do everything in virtual reality, but I think that's the powerful gestures. Yeah, I feel like VR is a different story. Maybe if you don't want to, maybe if you're only going to do media consumption and you don't want to play games, they could be like, all right, well, you already have an Apple Watch, just use that instead of a controller. But VR is such a delicious thing that you're putting the headset on you're probably going to grab controllers and play i just feel like this yeah, is a much more sure. important thing for ar yeah yeah well i wanted to pour one out for drobo 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 is like a hardware nas or external drive system where you can put like multiple hard drives like synology and qnap and those other pegasus type brands well they filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy unfortunately but i just want to mention them because i actually have used drobo in the past Back when I worked for the travel company and did photo and video footage, I used Drobo to store the things and, you know, I've had hard drives fail and replaced it and Drobo never lost the data. The Drobo, I still have the old model. I think it's a Firewire, like, you know, got it back in 2013 or whatever. It's sad, you know, see a company like that not remaining competitive and, and losing the uh, kind of market share compared to things with Synology, which on the other side of the coin, I recently bought a Synology. I got the 910 plus, I believe. I'll have to look it up. But when it comes to network attached storage and some of those options, you really do have great options now. Again, like I mentioned, QNAP Pegasus. Synology is kind of known for that. Oh, I'm sorry. So I got the D and I got the DS920 plus. It's a four bay Synology. I got some eight terabyte, the Seagate Wolf drives in there. And I got to say, I, I really enjoy it. I might do a video about it, but using it for video footage storage. I even edit off of the Synology connected over the network. It's not as fast as a you know, Thunderbolt SSD drive connected to my Mac studio, but it's fast enough where I can edit and not have many interruptions or drop frames. I've installed Plex on the Synology and so I can have a Plex server running with things like RIP DVDs and I got those and I can stream them to all my devices. Even if I'm not home, it'll just stream over the internet and you could do a bunch of cool stuff with the Synology. And so I will say, I was glad to make the investment. I finally got one. I have a backup solution now and I have a good video storage solution. And also it has the uh, M2 SSD slots for caching. So I got one NVMe SSD chip and put it in that Synology. It can take two, it has two slots, but I did one, one terabyte and it uses that for caching. And so I think that really helps with some of the video editing, even over the network. And you access it using the like go to folder or go to server, connect to server commands. Or you can just see it in the finder window when you connect to the server. And it's been uh, really cool. I like it. Synology is good stuff. Yeah, I barely filled the storage on any of my devices. Like, I just don't have that much things I need to save. I'm not making videos. So it's something I'm interested in, though. Like, I, I do want to maybe get some kind of SSD enclosure for my desk. So when my MacBook's hooked up to my Thunderbolt dock and everything, I could have 
a SSD enclosure with like, I don't know, a few terabytes just to offload my photos library and stuff for a local collection and, and some backups and such. But I, I've never needed that much storage um, personally, but it's definitely interesting and it's, it's sad to see something uh, competitive go, but from my understanding, Synology was always the best choice anyway. So yeah. Yeah. It's one of the best. Well, one of the other features that came out in iOS 16 beta three was the iCloud photo library sharing. I'm not about to enable that because I don't mess with my iCloud stuff in the betas. But Wes, you've explored some of these features. What'd you find? Well, I turned it on because I'm a, I'm a crazy person. Basically, it's actually really it's really interesting how straightforward it is. At, at first, I hadn't really dug into it too much. It sounded like you turn it on and your family that you're already in, you know, your six family members that you share Apple TV Plus and Apple Music with, would just have a shared iCloud library. That is not how this works. Turns out, this is a completely separate sharing group. Me, as the person who pays for like, you know, two terabytes of iCloud storage that I don't necessarily use, I would create this iCloud shared photo library. I am the host. Therefore, mm -hmm. I now host that library on my iCloud storage. And then I get to choose five other, any other people to add to that library who also are running iOS 16 you know, devices. Right. I add, you know, like my sister, my mother, whatever. And that, that way we have a shared family photo album. So they can, we can each individually set up the systems where automatically populates. If it's this person in the photo, if you're at home, you can say at home automatically share to this library. If it sees multiple faces, that kind of stuff as defined, you know, that's all there. Uh, I just found it interesting that it's a completely separate sharing group. So as I add other people, like my sister is not in my family sharing. I have my own family in my family sharing group, but I can add my sister uh, who can add pictures of her and her, her kids and stuff to our group you know so my mom can have access to the kids photos and all of that and we can all see it but it's on my iCloud storage because I'm hosting it I, I found that very interesting that's great now I'm excited for this feature and I'll be enabling it especially I mean for like me and my wife maybe my kids also there's some really weird things uh, limitations when you have it on you can view it, it it intermixes with your personal library so there's a toggle where you switch between mm. your library shared library or both apple really wants both to be your default setting um, mm. because if you try to go to the people album which shows your faces collection right if you've gone and labeled people's faces it doesn't show up in individual libraries anymore it only shows up in the both mm. view uh, I don't know why. I, I think it's maybe trying to collect faces from everyone's photos. So I guess it's just seen as a privacy thing. I'm not sure maybe that could change, but a lot of the folders, like the deleted album, uh, only lets you view photos in the deleted album if you have both selected. So weird limitations there, but again, it seems to be uh, working well. It's really well done in a way so you're not accidentally uploading photos you don't want there it's not going to spam anything the camera app interaction is really cool like for example i'm a, i'm about to go to the beach for the weekend i could just hit a toggle and camera saying every photo i take until i change the toggle back automatically put in the in the shared library instead of my personal one mm. and these are distinct two different libraries i just wanted to mention one last thing if you're in your in the both section or if you're in your personal library whatever and you see a photo and you want to put it in your shared library you say move to shared library pulls it out of your personal library and puts it in the both library which is dangerous mm. because yeah. everyone in the both live in the uh, shared library can now delete that photo so you gotta like that yeah so you can actually duplicate it which is funny if uh, i found out if you're in the shared library view not the both view but if you're in the shared library view and you duplicate a photo, it duplicates it into your personal one, not into the shared library, which is interesting. So that might be a, a good tactic to take going forward. Duplicate, share, duplicate, share. Yes. But when yes. you see that both view, you will now see duplicates of that photo, which is annoying. So I hope Apple streamlines this a little bit. I don't know, but it's, it's definitely an interesting feature I'm going to be taking advantage of. Yeah, I mean, just a toggle to say you know, sharer is the only one who can delete, you know, or like a photo owner, you know, whoever added this to the shared library, like only they can delete it. That would fix pretty much any complaint I have about this. If we just, we need at least a smidge of control, yeah. like, or even like shared, shared photo albums are still a thing. Um, 
I, I have an idea about this. I might write about this, but there's a reason why those still exist, even with shared photo library, and they both have good features. You can't comment or like photos. And what's weird, if you're in a family group <laughs> and you, or the shared iCloud photo library and I like a photo, my sister in her library has that photo liked as well. It likes it for everyone. It's just so, it's so odd. I, I'm, I'm not sure. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a beta feature early on. We'll see what happens. We'll see. All right, one last thing before we go. I wanted to mention Twitter user SDC2897. He heard me talking about the AirPods Max, how it's one of the few like lightning charging things and it doesn't do Qi charging. Well, he sent me a link to this Indiegogo campaign and it's called the Max Stand. This was this is a stand for your AirPods Max and it comes with this little lightning dongle. And so you put this lightning dongle into the AirPods Max ear cup and it'll just live in there. And then when you place your AirPods Max on this little stand, it will wirelessly charge your AirPods Max. And so you don't need to have a lightning cable dangling just to charge your AirPods Max, or you don't have to like try to charge it in the case. This little stand will put your AirPods Max to sleep and charge it. And then you can just take it off and listen, put it right back on and it starts charging. Honestly, loved this idea, immediately backed it. It's raised $287,000 right now by all the backers. It's like the MagSafe uh, dongle uh, before Apple reintroduced MagSafe. It, yes. It plugs a port into the AirPods Max that's a magnet. And when you put it in the stand, it connects to the charger. It's it's a good idea. Yep. But yes, if you want to use a wired headset like I do during a podcast, you'd have to pop it out every time. You would have to pop it out. Yeah. yeah. I, I personally use the Binks, uh, Bank, B-E-N-K-S, Binks headphone stand that they made bespoke for the AirPods Max. It has a curved canopy holder and everything specifically for the AirPods Max. And that's what I use. I just run a, a lightning cable up to it and plug my headphones in that way. But this is interesting too. Yeah, that, because you had that stand, I use the same one. I have the Banks. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes to it. I really like the stand. It fits the AirPods Max great. Love it. But again, like charging with that cable is annoying. And I always find that it's not charged at inopportune times. And so, I don't know. Uh, hopefully this thing ships. Right now it's supposedly in production. And then it will be shipping sometime soon hopefully this this indiegogo has been around for a while because i remember it coming out like yeah right after the airpods max were announced i don't know why it's still an indiegogo campaign and not something you can just buy i, I haven't looked into the details of their campaign but it seems like it's been going on for a very long time so hopefully right. they're probably running into COVID issues but hopefully it does eventually ship it says supposedly July 2022, so this month it would ship, but I got it. I'll let you know if I get a notification that this thing, that this thing is actually going to ship, and I hope it does. I think it's a great idea. And you're going to get it about the same time the AirPods Max with USB-C get announced. Get out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> Listeners, let us know. If you ever think USB-C is coming to AirPods Max, you can tweet at Wes and myself. Of course, you can support the show with $5 a month, get an ad-free version of the show in early access directly in Apple Podcasts or at Patreon dot com slash apple insider love to hear from you and again tweet at wes and myself our twitter handles are in the show notes and if you haven't yet drop a five-star rating and review in apple podcast thanks for tuning in we'll catch you next time